What a joy it is to study God's Word together. Let's open our Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's on page 237 in your pew Bible. This chapter contains David's lament following the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. I stole the title of today's sermon from a commentator who captures the beauty of David's lament in two words. Good grief. Good grief. It can be somewhat of a humorous play on words, but it really does encapsulate the thrust of this lament. You know, everybody grieves. Every single person on planet Earth grieves. Because grief is part of the human experience. You probably don't remember this, but the first sound you ever made was a cry when you came out of your mother's womb. And throughout our lifetimes, tears continue to be shed all throughout our earthly pilgrimage. This past Wednesday, I stood beside a grave and watched those who were gathered there weep over the loss of their loved one. Billy Graham was noted to have said that life at its best is full of sadness. It doesn't mean that there's no joy or celebration, good times in life, but the longer you live, the more pain, the more sorrow, the more grief you experience. Grief will remain a part of our human existence until that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or sickness or crying or pain because these things will be gone forever. Won't that be wonderful? In the meantime, we must continue to walk through what the old timers called this veil of tears. This valley of tears. But scripture shows us how to grieve in a good way. Good grief. And one of these ways is through lament. Lament has been described basically as thoughtful grief. Thoughtful grief. That is to say, it's more than uh, gushing out words in a moment of intense sorrow, like kind of like an emotional vomit. Lament unites the intensity of one's emotions with the discipline of one's mind to to create what one has called structured sorrow. A coherent agony. Where words are carefully selected and, and crafted and honed in order to express as closely as possible and yet as fully as possible the pain that we feel. And that's what David bequeaths to us in 2 Samuel 1, as he mourns the loss of King Saul and his son Jonathan, the events of which occurred in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31. God has provided this scripture for our encouragement, for our comfort, for our instruction, so that when we go through times of suffering, of sorrow, of loss, and we will. We can grieve well. With that in mind, let's consider, first of all, 
the grievous report. The grievous report. Second Samuel 1, verses 1 to 10. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead also. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. At first glance, this Amalekite seems to be a decent guy. He traveled 75 to 80 miles from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag, where David and his men had been recovering from a long travel, a hard fight, and were taking time to rebuild their charred homes. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, you need to go back and read 1 Samuel 30. That tells you the account of what was happening with David in the days prior to this event. But the Amalekite shows up here all disheveled, apparently in mourning. He falls to the ground out of deep respect for David, and he delivers the tragic news. There's been a terrible defeat. Israelite bodies are strewn everywhere. So many people dead, including King Saul and his son Jonathan. As proof of their death, the Amalekite hands to David... Saul's crown and his armband. But if you read 1 Samuel 31 and compare it to what the Amalekite says here in 2 Samuel 1, there's a clear discrepancy, isn't there? The Amalekite says that he found Saul leaning on his sword, that Saul asked the Amalekite to kill him, which he did, seeing that he couldn't live anymore. That's what the Amalekite said. And then he took the crown and the armband and brought them to David. But in 1 Samuel 31, we are told by the narrator that Saul fell on his own spear and died. And that when Saul's armor bearer saw that he was dead, he fell and killed himself as well. Now some try to harmonize these two accounts, saying how can we kind of make these two stories fit, but there's really no need to do that. Because the narrator tells us exactly what happened in the account itself in 1 Samuel 31. Whereas the Amalekite is putting a little bit of a spin on the story to make himself look good to David. 
As one commentator said, have you ever met an Amalekite you could really trust? <laughs> well, David wasn't at the battle. 1 Samuel 31 hadn't been written yet, so he had nothing to go on except this Amalekite story. And clearly the Amalekite falsified his report in order to score brownie points with David, thinking that maybe he would uh, be put in his royal guard or become his bodyguard or be given some other position of high authority in the kingdom now that David would surely be king. The Amalekite assumes that David is driven by the same passion for power that he is. But he's wrong. We could say he's dead wrong. After David's this uh, grievous report, we look at David's godly response in verses 11 to 16. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. These verses reflect David's godly response. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, we see his sorrow, don't we? You would think that verse 13 would immediately follow verse 10, that David, upon hearing this report, would immediately order the execution of the Amalekite, and then with him out of the way, take time to grieve the death of Saul and Jonathan with his family and with his friends. But that's not what happens. David sorrows before he has the Amalekite executed. And it's kind of an, an odd picture because if you can envision the scene, it says that David and his men mourn and fast and weep until evening. So it's kind of like the Amalekite is just kind of like maybe standing there awkwardly. Well, all this mourning and sorrow and fasting is going on. Certainly not what he anticipated. Why the delay in the execution? It's because their grief is great. And it can't wait to express itself. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you suddenly got bad news, and regardless of how it came to you, once you realize it's true, there's this immediate overwhelming impulse to grieve. And that's what happened to David and his men. Matthew Henry rightly observed, the more we love, the more we grieve. The more we love, the more we grieve. And David's grief in this case is exemplary, especially when we consider all that Saul had done to him. All the ways in which Saul had mistreated him. And yet David truly mourned the loss of King Saul. And especially of his son, Jonathan. And as we consider David's exemplary grief for a man that had mistreated him so terribly, 
it should prompt us to examine ourselves. Do we show such love and concern for God's kingdom? For the Lord's people? David grieved greatly that Saul and Jonathan had died and also that God's people were defeated. That their bodies lay strewn all over the slopes of Mount Gilboa. His grief was great and it could not wait. I suppose if we could spiritualize this a little bit, what is our response when we see a deadness among God's people? Professing believers. How do we react when we see spiritual apathy in the lives of others? How do we respond when we see a denomination or a Christian institution um, depart from the truth of Scripture in order to be more culturally relevant? What is our response? Or really, the question is, what is our first response? Our response should demand a few things, but my question is, is our first instinct to sorrow? Or are we quick to censor? To to clinically criticize what they're doing with having no feelings of how this hurts God's kingdom. Dale Davis in his commentary warns us against what he calls a kind of evangelical arrogance. A sort of a humble version of Luke 18.11 where the Pharisee prayed, Lord God, I thank you that I am not like other people. As he proceeds to point out their sins while highlighting his own perceived virtues. If we're not careful, we can be marked by the same arrogance on a broad scale as we criticize other churches or denominations or institutions that depart from Scripture or probably more close to home, we can can display such arrogance and unfeelingness and a critical spirit on a more narrow and personal level as we see other believers go astray. As we see other families that are in spiritual disarray. I think the lesson here for us in David's initial response, not his only response, but his initial response is to grieve and sorrow over the state of the Lord's people. I thought of other scriptural examples and thought, Lord, may we like David and Jeremiah the weeping prophet, like Daniel and Nehemiah and even Jesus himself, grieve over the tragic state of God's people making godly sorrow our first response. Not our only response, but our first response. Let's look at David's standard. David expressed a godly response not only by his sorrow, but also by the standard that he upheld in verses 13 to 16, which we've already read. David upheld God's standard in the execution of the Amalekite. By having him killed, or before having him killed, David said, why were you not afraid to touch the Lord's anointed? To kill the Lord's anointed? And then, once David sentences him to death, he says, you have condemned yourself because you have confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed. Even though the Amalekite 
hadn't really killed Saul. He was condemned by the words of his mouth. The very words that he thought would bring favor actually ended up costing him his life. And as we look at this brief exchange between David and the Amalekite and his subsequent execution, I think there's two principles that we can draw from this. Number one, words designed to please people will eventually hurt you, not help you. Words designed to please people will eventually hurt you, not help you. Think about what the Amalekite said. Compare what he said of 1 Samuel 31. Were his words really all that different from what actually took place? All he did was alter a little fact here, a little fact here, in order to make himself look good. He put a little spin on it to make himself look good to David. Yet he had no idea that his spin was a sin that would cost him his life. Jesus said, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is to say, in the end, we will answer to God for everything we say. One of the identifying marks of true believers is that the course of our lives, the pattern of our behavior, is that we speak the truth in love. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul states rather matter-of-factly, I am not trying to win the approval of people. For if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Therefore, it's no wonder that David prayed in Psalm 19.14, May the words of my mouth and even the meditations of my heart be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May this be our prayer as well. Second principle we can draw from this brief exchange is that a godly person will not only adhere to God's standard, but will also hold others to account. A godly person will not only adhere to God's standard, but also hold others to account. Not only did David himself refuse to touch the Lord's anointed, but you might remember in chapters 24 and 26 of 1 Samuel, he also restrained his men from doing that when he was with them and had the power to do so. In this case, he wasn't there when Saul died. And he didn't know that the Amalekite didn't kill Saul because he was only going by the confession of his mouth. But then David held him accountable. When the Amalekite said that he killed Saul, David had the Amalekite killed, executed. And it's important to remember that this was not an act of vigilantism. This was a proper use of David's authority as God's anointed king. It was a sentence of capital punishment. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter exercised his authority as an apostle by pronouncing judgment against two Amalekites in the church named Ananias and Sapphira. Now, they weren't Amalekites ethnically, but they were spiritually, weren't they? They 
falsely represented themselves in order to create a good impression in the eyes of Peter and other people in the church. And yet they wound up being buried as a result. And apparently this act of discipline, which was rather severe, I mean death for disobedience, in Acts 5 was not a unique occurrence. In his teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells believers to examine themselves. And in the original context, he was writing to a local church, the church at Corinth, and he said that if we eat and drink of the Lord's body and blood in an unworthy manner, then we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. We're incurring the Lord's discipline. And then he said this, and I quote, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. There were believers in the church at Corinth who God struck dead because of disobedience, because of a refusal to repent, to walk in fellowship with Christ, and ignoring the Lord's discipline in their lives. And all this to say that God takes sin seriously. And so should we. God doesn't want us to kill each other, but He does want all of us to be killing sin. Colossians 3.5 says so. As one Puritan said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God doesn't want us to kill one another, but He does want us to kill sin and to call one another to account. Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. He is our standard. The Lord is our standard. The Lord our righteousness. David recognized this and responded accordingly. He expressed genuine sorrow. He upheld God's standard. And then thirdly, he wrote a song of lament. David's song is in verses 17 to 27, the last half of the chapter. 2 Samuel 1, beginning in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not on the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. 
I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. In his commentary on this passage, Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold wrote, In one of the most emotional and moving scenes of the Bible, David's genuine pain comes through with singular clarity. End quote. This is an outstanding example of lament as thoughtful grief. A grief that unites the intensity of one's emotions with the discipline of one's mind to create a structured sorrow. A coherent agony. Verse 18. As David introduces the lament, he says it should be taught to the people of Israel. That's the ESV translation. You may have a translation that says, instead of it, the bow should be taught to the people of Judah. That's because the word it is based on the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the original language of the Old Testament was Hebrew, and the Hebrew text says the bow. And this was most likely the title of the lament, which makes sense in light of the central verse in verse 22, where David refers to the bow of Jonathan that did not turn back. David says that the song is to be sung, and that it is written in the book of Jashar, which apparently was a collection of early poetry and perhaps songs as a ready resource for God's people. This outpouring of David's distress was therefore meant not only to benefit him, for for him to process and express his own pain, but to be a true help to others when they endured pain, and also to remember the legacy of Saul and Jonathan as leaders in Israel. If we were to incorporate the intent, therefore, of lament into this basic definition of thoughtful grief, of structured sorrow, of coherent agony, we could say, as Dale Davis does, quote, a lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. End quote. Why lament? Why incorporate lament as a way to process our pain, our suffering? Because God knows that loss is real. We have a sympathetic Savior who knows that pain is felt. And this Savior has instructed us saying that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. We're to share in one another's sorrows. And here's the good news. By grieving well, by grieving together, we can help one another to grieve well. We don't have to go through pain alone. In the opening stanza of verse 19, David introduces us to the theme of the lament. So what we're doing here is is in order to grieve well, we're simply drawing out a few features in David's lament that can be instructive for us. In verse 19, he introduces the theme of the lament. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. 
The high places were typically the last places to be taken. And it's like David is picturing that the, 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 the last ones standing in battle are Saul and Jonathan and the other mighty warriors. And yet sadly, tragically, the mighty have fallen. And this becomes the catchphrase of the song. It's kind of like the central theme. And this same phrase appears again, either identically or in some form, later on in verses 25 and 27 as well. David's lament in verse 20, if you look at that verse, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Ashkelon and Gath are Philistine cities. Where has David been the last 16 months? In Philistia. And yet here in his lament, we see that though David was living in Philistia all this time, his heart was still fully loyal to Israel. The idea of Philistine women celebrating the Philistines' victory, the way that the Israelite women had celebrated David's victory over Goliath back in 1 Samuel 18, made David's heart sick. So he says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't publish this news in Ashkelon. I, the thought of these women coming out in the streets and celebrating the death of Saul and Jonathan and the beloved people of Israel makes me sick. The news of what happened on Mount Gilboa is so tragic, so sad, that David wants the landscape itself to join in the lament, to feel the loss. He doesn't want any dew or rain to fall on Mount Gilboa. He doesn't want any crops of grain to grow on its slopes because it was there that the mighty fell. It was there that Saul and Jonathan perished. Speaking of which, David chooses to remember the best about Saul, doesn't he? No review of his many grievances against Saul, the many ways Saul had mistreated him so unjustly. David chooses to remember the best about Saul as well as Jonathan, picturing them as mighty warriors fighting side by side. Verses 22 and 23, see that? From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. In other words, they went down fighting, and some Philistines fell with them. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. In verse 24, the women of Israel who at one time rejoiced are now called to weep because the king that provided for them so well has perished. And again, the theme of the lament is repeated in verse 25. Only now as the song begins to culminate, David narrows his attention to Jonathan. You see that? Verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. That's the theme of the lament. Then he narrows his attention. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Then David speaks to Jonathan directly in verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Women. 
It's a shame that modern interpreters have taken this statement by David as evidence that he and Jonathan supposedly had a homosexual relationship. As one commentator put it, it really says more about the culture of our day than it does about the culture of David's day. There are good reasons to outrightly reject such an interpretation. Number one, the standard Old Testament verb for sexual activity, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. We see this, for instance, all over the Old Testament, but certainly in Genesis 4.1, where it says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. Doesn't mean that Adam knew her like he knew who she was. Some translations say, just go ahead and uh, uh, translate the sense of it in English, saying he had sexual relations with his wife. That's what that word means in that context. But nowhere is that word used to describe the relationship of David and Jonathan. The word that is used, the word love, is the same word used in 1 Samuel 18.3 where their souls were knit together. It says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him, same word, as his own soul. This was a soulish love between these men, not a sexual love. And so deep and binding and covenantal was their friendship that it was the best love David had ever known, surpassing even the love of women. Like no one else David had ever known, Jonathan willingly set aside his own interests for the good and the prosperity and the success of David. That's a true friend. So knit was the heart of David to Jonathan that near the end of David's lament, he addresses Jonathan directly as if he were still alive. Have you ever done this in losing a loved one? I did. In the first several weeks after my mom passed away, I would look at her picture and I would speak to her directly, just out of my emotion, saying, Mom, I love you so much. I I miss you so much. Thank you for being such a great mom. Mom's not there. I'm looking at her picture, but I'm speaking to her directly as if she were still alive in the midst of my sorrow. Some years ago, when attending a, a wake right here in the Webster area, I, I went to the visiting hours. A husband had lost his wife. And we were looking at pictures of the family. He was standing right next to me. And I said, oh, who's that? And he went, oh, that's a uh, honey. Who? And he just instinctively went to turn to his wife to ask her a question. And he just put his head down. He goes, I can't tell you how many times I've done that these last few days. How many times I just instinctively turn to ask my wife a question or to make a comment to her, but she's gone. It's like a part of him was missing. His other half. I can't imagine what it would be like to have my wife gone to lose her after 33 years almost of marriage. And yet I know some of you have been married 
for twice that long or more. The more we love, the more we grieve. And how can we endure that kind of sorrow unless we are convinced that underneath it all is a love that can never be separated? Romans 8, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remembering this truth in the midst of his sorrow prompted George Matheson to write the hymn, O love that will not let me go. Some of you might remember that hymn, but do you know the story behind it? Let me read it to you quickly. At age 20, George Matheson, who lived from 1842 to 1906, was engaged to be married, but began going blind. At age 20. When he broke the news to his fiancée, she decided that she could not go through life with a blind husband. So she left him. Before losing his sight, he had written two books on theology, and some felt that if he had retained his sight, he could have been the greatest leader of the Church of Scotland in his day. A special providence was that George's sister offered to care for him. With her help, George left the world of academia for pastoral ministry and wound up preaching to 1,500 people each week, blind. The day came, however, in 1882, when his sister fell in love and prepared for marriage herself. The evening before the wedding, George's whole family had left to get ready for the next day's celebration. He was alone in the house and facing the prospect of living the rest of his life without the one person who had come through for him, his sister. On top of this, he was reflecting on his own aborted wedding 20 years earlier. It is not hard to imagine the fresh waves of grief washing over him that night. And in the darkness of that moment, George Matheson wrote to the Lord, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul. Indeed. For the final stanza, Matheson wrote, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground bear blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Hope in the midst of sorrow. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of our grief, We cling to the gospel and we look forward to the glorious future that shall belong to each and every child of God. As I stood by the grave of Nino Campagna this past Wednesday with his daughter Rosemary and other family members weeping over the loss of their loved one, we were reminded from Scripture, specifically 1 Thessalonians 4, that we don't grieve as if the grave were the last word. It's not. Because Jesus died but then broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back with him those who died in Jesus. Billy Graham was right. Life at its best is full of sadness. This life. But there is a new world coming a new heaven and new earth in which God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, suffering, sickness, crying, or pain for these things will be gone 
forever. In the meantime, let's not waste our sorrow. Let's make the most of our grief. Let us make it our aim, like David and other saints who have gone before us, to grieve well, not just for our sakes, but for the sakes of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In his helpful book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, Pastor Mark Vrogop writes, and I close with this, Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walking through sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. Lament is how Christians grieve. It is how to help hurting people. Lament is how we learn important truths about God and about our world. A broken world and in an increasingly hostile culture make contemporary Christianity unbalanced and limited in the hope we offer if we neglect this minor key song. Christianity suffers when lament is missing. There is deep mercy under dark clouds when we discover the grace of lament. Let's pray. Father, even as we read the song of David's sorrow, we're reminded of the times of sorrow, the seasons of grief in our own lives, whether it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of something else or someone else that we have held dear, whether it's a physical or emotional pain we are enduring, or some other suffering experienced in a crisis. Father God, we thank you that the very Savior who intercedes for us is sympathetic toward us. And your own Holy Spirit who indwells us is called the Comforter. Thank you, God, for showing us the way to grieve well. Help us to do that for your glory and for the good in comfort of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as for a world that is watching us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.